What is your earliest childhood memory? The, the first image in your mind, how far back does it go? You know, um, I, I found it so interesting that, I, that, that so many of the people I've talked to about their earliest memory, and this may not be true for, for everyone here, it may not be true for you, but, but so many people I've talked to about their earliest memory, it has to do with, with death or, or a funeral. That's the way it is for me. The, the earliest memory that I can really go back to, I was a little over three years old. It's the funeral for my, for my grandmother, Naomi Gamble. And I, I remember everyone being dressed in, in dark colors. And, and I remember people crying. And I, I remember my, my mamaw seeing her uh, laying out so still in her casket. And, and I remember being so happy when we got to go outside at the cemetery. And my dad repeatedly warning me not to step on the graves. That's something I've carried with me to this day. But what's your, your earliest memory? The ninth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes is probably a chapter that Solomon wishes he could leave out. And here's why. He's getting older. He's advancing in, in years, and he is staring down something that every one of us will have to stare down one of these days, and that's death. Death is one of those things we don't like to talk about, isn't it? We treat death like it's a dirty word, like it's something that we shouldn't say. We come up with all kind of euphemisms to keep from having to say dead or, or death or dying. In fact, there's a, I want to show you an old video this is, uh, this is from the, the, an old skit from the British comedy troupe Monty Python. Um, and, and I want you to see how many euphemisms for death you can spot in this little three-minute clip here. to register a complaint. Hello, miss. What do you mean, miss? Oh, I'm sorry, I have a cold. I wish to make a complaint. <laughs> sorry, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about this parrot what I purchased not half an hour ago from this very boutique. Oh, yes, the Norwegian blue. What's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It's dead. That's what's wrong with it. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's resting. Look. Look, my lad, I know a dead parrot when I see one, and I'm looking at one right now. No, no, it's not dead, it's resting. Resting? Yeah. Remarkable bird, the Norwegian blue. Beautiful plumage, isn't it? The plumage don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, no, it's resting. All right, then. If it's resting, I'll wake it up. Hello, Polly. I got a nice cuttlefish for you when you wake up, Polly Parrot. There, it moved. No, it didn't. <laughs> that was you pushing the cage. I did not. Yes, you did. Hello, Polly. <laughs> Polly. Polly Parrot, wake up. Polly. <laughs> now, that's what I call a dead parrot. No, no, it's stunned. Look, my lad, I've had just about enough of this. That parrot is definitely deceased. And when I bought it not half an hour ago, you assured me that its lack of movement was due to it being tired and shagged out after a long squawk. Oh, sir. It's got 
be pining for the fields. Pining for the fields? What kind of talk is that? Look, where did it fall flat on its back the moment I got it home? The Norwegian blue prefers kipping on its back. It's a beautiful bird, lovely plumage. Look, I took the liberty of examining that parrot, and I discovered that the only reason that it had been sitting on its perch in the first place was that it had been nailed there. <laughs> was nailed there, otherwise it muscled up to those bars and boom! Look, matey, <laughs> this parrot wouldn't boom if I put 4,000 volts through it. <laughs> it's bleeding demise. It's not, it's, it's pining. It's not pining, it's passed on. <laughs> this parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. <laughs> this is a late <laughs> it's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, you would be pushing out the daisies. It's run down the curtain and join the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. <laughs> well, I'd better replace it then. If you want to get anything done in this country, you've got to complain to your blue in the mouth. Sorry, Governor. This is an ex-parrot. Now, here's what I know. Some of you are looking for a way to sneak out of here right now. You're, you're planning your escape route. You're thinking maybe you can fake a coughing fit like you're going out in the foyer to get a drink of water and then just hightail it because you didn't know we were going to talk about death today. If you had known that we were going to talk about death this morning, you'd have stayed home or you'd have gone to the lake or to the golf course or somewhere like that. Why do I always say golf course? I don't know. Can you spare me just a few minutes? See, you may think this message is going to be morbid. That it's another downbeat message from Mr. Sunshine, King Solomon. But it really isn't. This is our sixth week in a, in a study of the book of Ecclesiastes that we're calling Meaningless. And Ecclesiastes is the story of King Solomon's decision to try to find happiness and, and purpose and fulfillment in life outside of God, apart from God. And here's what he found. He found that if, if all the power and all the fame and all the money and all the pleasure, if that is all there is to this life, then life is meaningless. The Bible tells us that King Solomon was the was the wisest, smartest man who ever lived. But he was far from the last person to discover this sobering truth about life without God. You know, lots of not-so-smart and not-so-wise people like me come to the realization every day that if this life and all we can achieve and all we can have and all we can accomplish and all we can, we can accumulate, if that is all there is, then life ultimately means nothing. So Ecclesiastes is, is a disturbing, almost depressing account of life without God. It's given to us by God as a cautionary tale, as an example to help us understand that, yes, life without God is meaningless, but life with God means everything. So in this ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's going to talk about end-of-life issues. And, and, and he wants us to see that we're all going to have to stare death 
in the eye. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 if you have your, your Bible with you today. Right after Psalms and Proverbs comes Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the scripture on the screen as we go along. You can follow along there. The very beginning of, of verse 1, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1. Solomon says, this too I carefully explored. Carefully explored. He's using language here that means to pause and reflect on something. See, what's happened is Solomon has come full circle. He once had God in his life. God was everything to him. He talked to God. God talked to him. Then he decided for whatever reason, we said last week, we really don't know why, what made him decide to do this, but he embarked on this experiment of life without God. And now he's come full circle. And God is back in the picture, and Solomon wants us to see this. Everything, everything from the day we are born until, uh, until the day we die has a meaning and a purpose. Every breath from our first to our last has a meaning and a purpose. Ultimately, I think Solomon wants us to see that it will either be a shame that we lived or a shame that we died. It will either be a shame that we lived, the way we lived, the manner of our life, what we accomplished, what it counted for, or it will be a shame that we died. And what determines which of those is true about us is how we live before we die. The title of this message is, is Life Before Death. And you know, the truth is, if a pastor ever asks people uh, what they want to study, and I'll just, speaking from personal experience, I'll tell you not to do that, okay? Because they always say revelation and life after death. That's like the only two things people ever want to study. If you say, what would you like to study? What would you like to hear sermons on? They always say, revelation or life after death. I've never had anybody say, I'd like to study Genesis or maybe life before death. Never. But Solomon is telling us here about life before death. He's not talking about life after death. He's talking about life before death. And what he says to us is that we need to be thinking about how we should live our lives in light of the fact that we know we're going to die. How should we live because we know we're going to die? I know I'm going to die, so how should I live? Solomon's going to give us three pieces of information, three pieces of advice that will help us live before we die. Here's the first one. Solomon says to us, let's make sure that we pass the test of life. Make sure we pass the test of life. Look at the rest of, of, of um, verse 1. In fact, let's just read all of it again. This too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. Now this has the potential to blow a few minds. There is no such thing as random. We say it all the time. That's random. But it's not. Solomon's just told us everything's in God's hands. Everything. Everyone. Good person or bad person. Churchgoer or not. 
believer or unbeliever. We're all in God's hands, but none of us knows whether God's going to show us favor. Isn't that what that verse says? The NIV says that, that we don't know whether love or hate awaits us. Now, here's what I think that means. It means that even though all of us, every one of us are in God's hands, even though it means that, that God is in control, there is no guarantee that we will always have a paycheck. There's no guarantee that we will always feel good, be in good health. There's no guarantee that our relationships will always go smoothly. There's no guarantee that everybody will like us. As a pastor, I deal with that every day. I never know what the next email is going to hold. I I, I never know what the next phone call is going to bring. I I never know whether it's going to be good news or bad news. Whether it's going to be an encouragement or a discouragement. Whether it's going to be praise or criticism. When somebody says, Pastor, I need to talk to you. Oh my goodness. My insides turn to ice water. Because you don't know if you're going to get an attaboy or a how dare you. You just don't know. The only thing we do know is that no matter what happens, everything is in God's hands. Everything is in God's hands. Solomon's going to go on to say now that that while life is uncertain, death is a certainty. Look in verse 2. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners. And people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. It seems so tragic that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. That is why people are not more careful to be good. Instead, they choose their own mad course, for they have no hope, and there is nothing ahead but death anyway. Solomon's telling us something here that we all already know. Death doesn't play favorites. Nobody gets a pass when it comes to death. Everybody dies, whether we go to church or we don't, whether we believe in God or we don't, whether we're good or bad or cold and indifferent. We're going to die. How we get ready for that is our test of life. It's the test of our life. How are we getting ready for death? How are we making preparations for what we know is coming? I love Rick Warren. He said, how foolish is it to make no preparation for something we all know is inevitable? We know the number of minutes in an hour. My my six-year-old, getting ready to be a first grader, he knows how many minutes are in an hour. And he knows how many hours are in a day. But there's something none of us in this room knows. And that's how many days are in a lifetime. And that troubles us. Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) The problem is we all all have to be there when it happens. And and, and can I just tell you this? Some of you are going to appreciate this. You will not be late for this one. Oh, you know who you are. You'll be right on time. Because, listen, death is an appointment. 
Death is an appointment. Hebrews 9.27 says each person is destined to, to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And that word there that the, the New Living Translation translates destined means reserved for. It's reserved for everyone to die. In fact, it also means appointment. And some translations say it is appointed unto man once to die, to die and then the judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the, the, the previous chapter, verse 8. Solomon says this, None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. You know, you know what that means? That means we can eat bean sprouts and tofu. And we can go to the gym. And, and we can take cholesterol medicine. We can do everything right from a nutritional, physical standpoint and still drown in the bathtub in three inches of water. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? None of us can prevent the day of our death. Now somebody says, now hang on a second. If both the righteous and the unrighteous are going to die, then why be righteous? If both the godly and the ungodly have the same destiny, then why be godly? What does it matter? If the same fate awaits all of us, why be different? Why even try? That is a great question. I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is that there is no difference in our destiny before we die. Everybody's going to die. Good people die, bad people die. Christians die, non-Christians die. Muslims die, Hindus die. Atheists die, agnostics die. Old people die, young people die. Rich people die, poor people die. We had a lady in our town, I was growing up, she was on her deathbed, this is no exaggeration, for 40 years. She was just always on the brink of death. Every Sunday for 40 years, they mentioned her name for prayer. She's just, the doctor says she will not make it through the week. And maybe prayer worked. Maybe prayer kept her alive each week. But I know this, a lot of people who weren't even sick when we started praying for her passed away before she did. <laughs> there is no difference in our destiny before we die. But the Bible says there is a huge difference in our destiny after we die. And that depends on how we live before we die. When we have seen it all and tried it all and done it all and achieved it all and tasted it all and acquired it all, when we have immersed ourselves in everything that people pursue to try to give their lives some meaning, some purpose, some substance, the question will remain, what did our life really matter in the end? What did it count for? Look at verse 4. Ecclesiastes 9.4. There is hope only for the living. As they say, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. I can agree with that. 
I mean, it is hard for me to imagine any set of circumstances where it would be better to be a dead rather than an alive, right? Because as long as I'm alive, I have hope. As long as I'm alive, I can hope. Solomon wants us to see that life is not just what happens to us while we're sitting around waiting to die. That eminent theologian, John Lennon, said, He said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. But that doesn't have to be true. We can choose to live life every day. Live life to the fullest every day. Not to just exist. Not to just sit down and wait for death to come and take us away. We can live life every day. Now look at verse 5. The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. And here's what I think Solomon is saying. Life is better than death for one reason. As long as we're alive, we know we're going to die. And since we know we're going to die, we can choose at any time to change the course of our lives. That was important. Did you get that? Because we know we're going to die, we can choose at any time to change the course of our lives. Every day, any day, you and I can get out of bed and say, Today, I'm going to make my life count for something. As long as we have life, we have hope. As long as we have life, we have hope. Let's make sure we pass the test of life. Here it is. Knowing that I'm going to die, how am I going to live? Knowing that death is out there, the end is coming, how am I going to make my life count in the meantime? Every day we have the opportunity to make the most out of the life that God has given us. Here's the, here's the second thing, second piece of advice that Solomon would give us. Make sure we enjoy the rest of life. Make sure we pass the test of life. Let's make sure we enjoy the rest of life. Now, this point has the the potential to liberate some of us this morning. I mean, just lift some heavy burdens off the backs of people who've been carrying them for a long time. Listen carefully. God does not just want us to endure life. He doesn't even just want us to experience life. He wants us to enjoy life. Life is given to us to to enjoy. Take a look around, folks. In this room this morning, we have people who have beaten sickness and disease. We have people who have battled back from financial ruin. We have people in this room who have rebuilt relationships that were on the brink. So what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Because... When you've stared failure or disaster or death in the face, then you know how fragile the string of this life can be. Solomon knew that. That's why he's telling us, enjoy life. Now, there are people in this room who think, you know what? If I ever become serious about being a follower of Jesus, the party's over. I'll never have any fun ever again. 
Well, why don't you take it from a guy who knows how to have fun? When you become a follower of Jesus, the party is just starting. The party is just beginning. Part of being a believer is having a good time and enjoying life. If you don't believe me, you go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the Garden of Eden. Do you know what Eden means? It means pleasure, delight. God put Adam and Eve in the garden of pleasure. That's what he intended this world to be for you and me. And you know, the, the, the truth is, I'm not talking about big stuff. I'm not talking about expensive stuff. But every day, we do not have to look far to find some reason to celebrate life. We just don't have to look that far. Summertime, just about over. But what it means for us, what it means in my household, is that most nights Grayson ends up in the bed with us. And he's the baby, so that's okay. Well, no, it's not really. Because he tosses and turns. And he, he does this thing. I wish I could show you. He does this thing where he kicks his legs like this. Over and over and over again. Till all the covers push down to the very end of the bed. And then he puts his bony little elbows. And his rubber gripper toes. Have you ever noticed that kids have little rubber gripper toes? He, put, he, he puts them right in my back or my eye or my windpipe. And it is, a, it is a miserable experience to sleep with that kid. Y'all are laughing like I'm joking. But then it's morning. And... Uh, and Vicky has gotten up and the coffee's going and you can smell it in the air. And, and that little kid is laying as close to me as he can possibly get. And he's got his arms around my neck. And I think it couldn't get any better than this. Couldn't possibly be any sweeter. Not a big deal to most people. It's a big deal to me. It doesn't cost me a dime. It costs me a night's sleep. <laughs> but it's free. It just makes me happy to have another day above ground. Listen, death should not overshadow life. It really shouldn't. What death should do is heighten our taste for truly, really living. Death should, should sharpen the value of everyday joy for us. You know what? The reality of death didn't make Solomon treasure all of his stuff, all of his money, all of his power and his influence. Death made Solomon treasure his life. Death is coming for you and for me. It's coming for everybody. But we can choose to live right up to that moment. 
Solomon points out some things for us to enjoy. Three things, real quick. First of all, he says, enjoy the meal. Enjoy the meal. It's in verse 7. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. So go ahead. Eat your food with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Don't, don't even take the simplest meal for, grant, for granted. It's one of life's great pleasures to be able to sit down with family and friends and eat a meal. I, my family has laughed more and cut up more and had more fun at meals than any other time in our lives. And we've eaten an awful lot of them together. I think that's why Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Because of the four F's. Food, friends, family, and football. That just, <laughs> just does it for me. I, I, this is a sermon, so I'll work faith in there somewhere. There's five F's, okay? There's five F's. When we sit down to eat, it is a reminder of God's care for us, of His provision for us. It's a reminder of the joy we can have when we follow Christ. Enjoy the meal. And then Solomon says, enjoy the moment. This is one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. Verse 8, wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Isn't that funny? When Solomon wrote this, Everybody had two sets of clothes. They had their, they had their everyday clothes, that they, you know, their working clothes, just whatever they put on each day. And then they had a set of garments that were special. Usually they were white because white was a symbol of joy and happiness. They, were, they had white garments, and they wore those white garments to every special occasion. If they went to, to a wedding or they got invited to a party or a banquet of some kind, they would put on those special white garments. And then they would also anoint their heads with oil. They would pour aromatic, very um, nice-smelling oil on their heads. And so the New Living Translation says this, wear fine clothes and put on some cologne. I think what Solomon is saying is make every day a special day. Treat every day like a special day, like you're doing something special, like you're going somewhere special. Treat the people that you meet like, you're, like, like you treat the special people in your life. And treat every Sunday like it is the greatest day of your life. I know you guys get tickled at me because I stand up here every Sunday and say, it's going to be great. This is a special day. Or I'll tweet it, I'll put it on Facebook. Sunday's going to be off the, off the chain. I believe it. That's why I say it. I believe it. Now I'm trying to be a little more restrained. I mean, I've learned the value of not hyping or, or overselling a Sunday and then it not meeting expectations. But I genuinely do get up on Sunday excited about what could happen that day. We ought to do that every day. Solomon says, enjoy the moment. Enjoy the meal. And he says, enjoy the marriage. It's in verse 9. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. Marriage has taken quite a hit in our culture the last few years, hasn't it? I mean, you turn on the TV, housewives are desperate. Desperate. 
There's real housewives, and I guess there must be unreal housewives. There's real one. All the husbands cheat. And there's this push to redefine marriage, to, to make marriage be something and mean something it has never meant ever in human history. And in the face of all that, Solomon says, enjoy the divine gift that God has given you. Enjoy it. It's a little ironic that Solomon does not say, live happily with the women you love. Because this was a guy who had 1,000 women that we know about. 700 wives, 300 mistresses. I, I don't think it's an accident that he uses the singular here. Woman, not women. Wife, not wives. Because I think what Solomon is saying is, if I had it to do all over again, I'd have 299 fewer wives and 700 less mistresses. I would have made a lifelong commitment to that one woman, that woman that I wooed so romantically in my song of songs. I would have put all my eggs in that basket. I would have given all of my heart and all of my love and all of my effort to making it work with her. Because he comes down to the end of life and he says, love that woman, that wife that God has given you. Enjoy that relationship. How do we do that? Well, we, we keep having fun with one another. We keep laughing with each other. We keep, we keep dating each other. We, we, we keep loving each other all the days of our life. Some are going to be better than others, folks. Some, some, some days are going to be better than others. Some months are going to be better than others. And yeah, some years are going to be better than others. But it's about the commitment to enjoy the relationship, the divine relationship that God has given us. Solomon says, you know you're going to die. So make a commitment to enjoy the rest of your life, to live every day to the fullest, right up to the end, right up to the day you die. And then... The third piece of advice that he would give us is make sure that we give the best to life. Make sure we give the best to life. Look at verse 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10. Whatever you do, do well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. I heard this the other day. From age 20 to age 50, the average American will work 56,000 hours. That's a lot. And you know what? We have a choice. We can approach those thousands of hours in one of two ways. We can approach those hours as dreaded drudgery, just doing it because we have to. You got to make a living, you got to survive, you got you to work somewhere. Or we can approach it as an opportunity to do the very best work we can, no matter what our job is and no matter what our level of responsibility is. Now make sure you see what Solomon doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, 
all you brain surgeons and rocket scientists, do your best work. He doesn't say, hey, all you, you, you nurses and, and, and cancer researchers and, and, and teachers, do your jobs well. No, he says, whatever you find to do, do it well. Now, I'm not going to blow any smoke at you today. I'm not going to try to tell you that if you sweep floors or, or flip burgers that you're going to change the world. But listen. You could definitely change the trajectory of a coworker's life by your example of a good work ethic and a good attitude. You could definitely change the day, change the attitude for a customer because of your courteous and efficient service to them. What if? What if instead of thinking that we worked for a paycheck or that we worked for a boss or that we worked for a company, what if we started thinking that we were working for the Lord? Would that change our work ethic? Would that change our enthusiasm level? Would that that change the way we approach our work every day? Well, guess what? We do. We do. It's in Colossians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul references what Solomon says here and then expands on it. He says this in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. Now let me tell you what I've just done. I've just ruined Monday mornings for a lot of people. Man, we love to complain. We love to grumble every step about that stupid job with that ungrateful company and our idiotic boss. And that's just the ones that are coming to staff meeting here at the church. Americans love to complain about their jobs. But now we know different, don't we? Now we know that God has put us where we are so that we can get paid working for Jesus, being an influence for Him. It's the most famous painting in the world. The Mona Lisa. Painted by Leonardo da Vinci. It hangs in the Louvre in Paris, France. Any French students over there are going to laugh at how I said Louvre? Hmm? No? Okay. But here's something you may not have known. The portrait that you see here is the fourth attempt at painting this picture. Digital imaging and, and x-rays, infrared technology has allowed experts to determine that there were no fewer than three separate, completely separate attempts to paint the same picture before this one. That means da Vinci was not willing to stop painting until he could look at what he had done and say, this is the very best 
I can do. There is no reason for any of us to give every job, every day, every task, every responsibility less than our best. Walt Disney said, do what you do so well that those who see you do what you do will want to see it again and bring their friends. And all that is, is what Solomon says here. Whatever you do, do well. Make sure we give the best to life. Let me, let me try to wrap this up. Here's the whole point that Solomon is trying to get across to us. Don't worry about how you're going to die. Focus instead on how you're going to live. Don't worry about when you're going to die. Focus instead on what you're going to do with your life from now until then. That's all we have. That's all we have. And here's the bottom line. Here's why we give our best to every day. Because God deserves it. Because God deserves it. Because He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, in death for us so that we could enjoy every day of life on this earth and enjoy eternal life after we die. We give our best to God because we know that when He gave us Jesus, He gave His best to us. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.